Good evening. We are winding down our series on rediscovering our foundations, and I know you're saying it's about time. Um, There are a few scriptures I need you to turn to in advance tonight. The first is in John chapter 14. You should turn there. The second is in 1 Thessalonians 4. You should mark that. And the third is in Matthew chapter 24. If you could put a marker there as well, it would just be easier when it comes time to turn to it. And there are things you need to read. That's why I'm having you turn to all three of them tonight. John 14, where we camp. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 24. Can you imagine the changes that the world has in store? Can you imagine a world without any war? A world in total peace? Absolute utopia? Can you picture a world where justice always prevails, where righteousness is always the rule, where everything is always fair? Can you imagine a world where the health of the populace is such that if a person dies at age 100, he is said to be a child dying prematurely? Can you imagine a world where children can play in snake pits and the snakes are friendly and the children are friendly? Can you picture a world where the food is so abundant that even though the earth is filled with a huge population, there is an abundant, more than adequate supply? Can you conceive of a world where all politicians in charge are saints? Where all those who enforce the law are also saints? Can you imagine a world ruled by one person with a perfect mind, a perfect will, and perfect wisdom. Well, you don't have to imagine it because that is exactly the world that is described in the Scripture when Jesus Christ comes back to rule and to reign. Talk about change. It's so foreign that now we have to imagine it, but one day we won't imagine it. There were two converts that came from the, uh, the jungles of the South Pacific to the United States for the first time They went to a missionary conference. They had never seen America, and you can imagine what they thought when they saw New York City with all of its lights and cars and buildings. Their jaws dropped every time they turned their head and looked at anything. And one day, walking into a large building in downtown New York City, they saw something they had never seen before. Two metal doors opened laterally, looking like they opened into the wall. And they noticed two large, rather large elderly ladies walk into these doors and the doors shut behind them and they looked above the doors and saw a dial sweep to the right and after a period of time sweep all the way back to the left and they just stood there as those doors then opened again and two young, beautiful ladies walked out. (laughs) They looked at each other. And one said to his friend, Oh man, we've got to bring our wives back to ride in that machine. (laughs) 
where we're, we're, we are all going to ride in a machine where the Bible says we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. The coming of Christ is the culmination of Christian hope. It's the fulfillment and the culmination of all of the hope, of all of the saints, of all of the ages. And when he comes back, all of the prayers we have prayed will be answered. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's when that prayer will be answered. The second coming of Christ is the theme of some of the greatest songs of the church. You know them. For instance, the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Julia Ward Howe had the second coming in mind when she wrote, Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Isaac Watts had the coming of Christ, the second coming in mind, not Christmas, not Bethlehem, when he wrote, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. It was the theme of the song by Stuart Klein, How Great Thou Art, when Christ shall come with shouts of acclamation and take me home. What joy! will fill my heart. What a great old hymn. And no wonder, because as we mentioned last week, the second coming is mentioned so frequently in the Scripture. For every time the first coming is alluded to, the second coming is alluded to eight times. For every time the atonement of Christ is mentioned or alluded to, The second coming is mentioned or alluded to twice. Jesus personally referred to his coming 21 times, 50 times in the New Testament. We are told to be ready for it. Question, are you? Are you ready for him to come back? When you think of the Lord coming back at any moment, do you go, "Uh uh-oh, or do you go, oh, oh? It was Arnold Schwarzenegger who sort of immortalized that term, didn't he, in the Terminator, I'll be back. But it was Jesus who said it first to a group of very troubled disciples one night at the Last Supper in an upper room. Let's read the text together, the first six verses of chapter 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, uh, we, we don't know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. It's pretty obvious that these disciples were troubled that night. They were troubled over something Jesus had said. And the context tells us why they were troubled. If they weren't troubled, Jesus wouldn't have said, let not your heart be troubled. But because it was... He said this, and the context tells us why. It was trouble over his coming. Now, if you would go back to chapter 13, verse 33, you'll discover why. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, 
And as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come, so now I say to you. Verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Keep a finger there and turn the page to the right. Look at chapter 16, verse 5. But now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? Of course, Peter did. But the rest didn't. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled or gripped your heart. They're troubled. They are worried. They are upset. Why? Over the second coming of Christ. You say, well, why would they be upset about that? For obvious reasons. You can't come twice unless you leave once. Right? You keep talking about coming back. That means you're leaving. And Jesus said, sorrow has filled your heart. Now, why were they sorrowful over this? There's two reasons I want to give you, and I want to apply it to us tonight. Number one is spiritual ignorance. Spiritual ignorance. During Jesus' life on earth, the disciples were absolutely unaware that there would be two comings of a Messiah. They expected the Messiah was going to come and set up shop, right? Going to take over, going to rule from Jerusalem. That's what they expected. The whole idea of one coming, then leaving, and then coming back was foreign to their minds. It wasn't until Jesus died, rose, and ascended into heaven, and the Spirit of God moved in these authors, that they got it. You'll remember how after Jesus rose from the dead and was with the disciples, that they said to him, Lord, it's now the time. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Okay, the atonement, cool, but you're alive again. Is this when you're going to set up shop? Jesus' answer probably discouraged them a bit at first. He said, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons which the Father has put in his own charge. Then he ascended up into heaven. They watched him leave physically. So much so that an angel had to interrupt there. said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? Don't you know this same Jesus who left will come in like manner? Spiritual ignorance is still a common problem. And this is what it will produce. Spiritual ignorance will produce either fanaticism or fear. We've all met fanatics over the second coming. They read prophecy into every single news article. Even comic strips have a prophetic significance to some. They're fanatical. They, they have this fanatical intensity about them. And they will set dates that don't come to pass. Others are afraid. They're fearful of the future. They're afraid that they missed the rapture. When I first heard about the rapture, I honestly thought it was bogus. I thought it was nuts. When I first heard it, they, they said, the rapture, what is that? You know, I grew up in a church. I never heard of the rapture. Then I read the New Testament text on it. I read other literature on it, and I could see it in the Scripture. I got excited about it. 
But I was still sort of ignorant how it all worked, you know. I was the kind of kid who in my class would pray that the Lord would come before the test. I thought it was sort of convenient if he would come before a, a, uh, a date with a certain girl or uh, some tr- big event. If he would just come, it would just solve all the problems. As time went on, I started getting scared over the thought, if Jesus comes back in my lifetime, what if I don't get taken? That fear was reinforced when I went to a Bible study one night with my Bible in hand, knocked on the door of the home where the study was, nobody answered, knocked again, nobody answered, opened the front door, saw Bibles lying all around in a circle. Saw coats and notebooks and pens and shoes, and I was scared. And it wasn't a joke they were playing. Uh, It was sort of the Lord using it, however. They were out back in the backyard looking up, seeing an airplane do stunts at the exact time I was at the front door. Now today, I am not uh, uh, fanatical over it, and I'm not fearful because of it. I'm greatly comforted when I think of the coming of Christ. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians and said, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Spiritual ignorance is one thing. There's something else. Personal indifference. These are the people who really are apathetic. They don't care one way or the other. If Jesus comes, cool. If he doesn't, I don't care. If you would look at our text when Jesus says in verse 4, Where I go, you know, and the way you know. And Thomas said to him, Lord... We don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? Now, I can just picture all of the other disciples as they're listening to Jesus up to this point. And Jesus says, now, where I'm going, you know. And they're all going, yep, we know. Of course they don't. And how to get there, you know. Yep, yep, yep. Thomas is so honest, isn't he? He's the apostle from Missouri, he's called. The show-me state. He just kind of butts in and goes, hey, now wait a minute. We don't know where you're going, and if we don't know where you're going, how can we know how to get there? And just the the way he's saying it, as well as the words he chooses, it's sort of like, what's the point of it all? Personal indifference can lead to apathy eventually. And apathy will lead to non-evangelism. They don't need to. No need to tell people about Jesus. You've got plenty of time, whatever. It'll all pan out. Dwight L. Moody wrote these words, Paul's epistles speak about the return of the Lord 50 times, and yet the church has very little to say about it. Now I can see a reason for this. The devil doesn't want us to see the truth, for nothing would wake up the church so much. The moment a man takes hold of the truth that Jesus Christ is coming again to receive his followers to himself, the world loses its hold on him. The church, said Moody, is cold and formal. May God wake it up. And I know of no better way to do that than to get the church to look for the return of the Lord. Now let's move from the trouble over the coming of the Lord to the timing of His coming. Look at verse 2. And and put yourself for a moment in the disciples' sandals. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, 
that where I am, you may be also. Now, I've got to say, in all fairness and in all honesty, the disciples are listening to this, but they don't fully get it. They don't fully get it. Jesus is speaking about His return for them, right? I'm going to receive you to Myself. He's referring to Jesus coming for His church, taking His saints to be with Him, not His coming to the earth to set up His kingdom. I'm going to come and receive you to Myself. The second coming, Revelation 19, is when Jesus comes with His saints to set up the kingdom. But what Jesus is speaking about, and again, they didn't get it right here, is that He would come for them. He would come and receive them to Himself. And Jesus, of course, doesn't explain this to them. They're in no condition to hear it. In fact, in chapter 16, Jesus says, I have many things to tell you, but you can't handle it. You're not ready for it. But let's talk about timing, shall we? Because we tonight have the benefit that the disciples at this point did not have. We have the benefit of the Holy Spirit's revelation through Paul and Peter and John after Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. So I want you to turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, a letter that Paul wrote. 1 Thessalonians 4. Verse 13, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. I've discovered something, that whenever Paul says that, it's because we are. He spoke about spiritual gifts, and he used the same wording. I don't want you to be ignorant about spiritual gifts. About the coming of Christ, I don't want you to be ignorant. And what are the two areas where the church seems to be most ignorant? Spiritual gifts and His coming. I don't want you to be ignorant concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Every now and then somebody will say, well, you know, the word rapture isn't in the Bible. Where do you guys come up with the word rapture? You're right. The word rapture is not in the Bible. It's not in this text anywhere. But the doctrine sure is. So where do we get the word rapture? Where does that come from? Well, you notice in verse 17, it says caught up together. The Greek word is harpazo. It's translated from Greek into English 13 times in the New Testament. Um, four times it's translated to catch up, like it is here. Three times it's translated to take by force. Twice to catch away. Twice it means to pluck. Once to catch and once to pull. Now I want you to listen to that verse, verse 17, in what is called the Wiest translation of the New Testament. Kenneth Wiest, a Greek scholar, took and expanded on the exact wording and syntax 
in, in a very colorful way as to make the point exact. Quote, We shall be snatched away forcibly in masses of saints having the appearance of clouds for a welcome meeting with the Lord in the lower atmosphere. That's the rapture. Skip, you didn't answer my question yet. Where do we get the term rapture from Jerome when he translated this word harpazo into the Latin Vulgate? The Latin word is rapere or rapto, which means the same thing, to seize or to carry off by force. Now, even a casual study of the New Testament will show that there is a vast difference between the rapture and the second coming. The rapture and the second coming are two different events. At the rapture, Jesus comes for his church. At the second coming, Jesus comes with his church, Revelation 19. At the rapture, Jesus comes from heaven and goes to the air where we ascend from the earth to meet him in the air. At the second coming, Jesus comes from heaven through the air and to planet earth and we are with him. At the rapture of the church, Jesus claims his bride. At the second coming, he comes with his bride. At the rapture, the focus is Jesus and the church. At his second coming, the focus is Israel and his kingdom, his millennial kingdom. The rapture is sudden, unpredictable. Jesus talked about no man knows the hour. Paul said in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. In Matthew 24, Jesus referred to it by saying, Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect Him. However, the second coming will be predictable. As I see it, and not everybody agrees, and that's okay. A lot of, you can be wrong, it's fine. But there's going to be a rapture. There's going to be seven years of a tribulation period. And then uh, there will be, at the end of that blackness, the stars will fall from heaven, the sun and the moon will be completely darkened, and the Son of Man will return. At the rapture, only believers will see Him. It says, we who are alive, in 1 Thessalonians 4, and remain will be caught up. But at His second coming, every eye will see Him. Now, I want you to turn with me to Matthew 24. We won't spend long here, just to read what Jesus said about this. In all fairness, Matthew 24 deserves a set of studies all to its own, which we have done and they're archived. But look at verse 26. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, that is, he the Christ, do not go out, or look, he is in the inner rooms, don't believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so will also the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send His angels with the great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together His elect from the four winds and from one end of heaven to the other. Now go back to John 14. Let's shift gears for a moment. We've talked about the trouble which is usually spiritual ignorance or indifference over his coming. 
We talked briefly and very briefly about the timing of the event. I want you to notice the triumph of the coming of Christ because I think really that's the heart of it. And if I go, verse 3, and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. Listen, Jesus' coming is not just an event meant to dazzle the saints or at His second coming to dazzle the unbelieving world. It is leading somewhere. It's leading us home. So shall we, Paul said, ever be with the Lord. The triumph of all of this is where it's going to lead. It's going to lead us to heaven, home, the Father's house. Now, again, Jesus did not explain here to the disciples. He didn't give them an eschatological roadmap. He gave them enough words to comfort them because their hearts were troubled. But Paul and Peter and John, the apostles, did expand on this in their writings. Here's the triumph. This is sort of how it's going to come down. At whatever time the Lord has planned, we don't know. But Jesus is going to come bodily from heaven. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father now. Come bodily to the air, to the atmosphere somewhere above the earth. Second, he's going to bring with him all of the souls of those Christians who have died up to that point. They're with him. They're with the Lord. They're in in his presence, in, in, in spirit, not in body. Their bodies in the earth decaying, but their soul is with him. And he comes back in the air, in the, the sphere of the earth, and the question is why? Why would he do that? Why the air at the earth? Simply because there's going to be a resurrection. Their dead bodies, in whatever state they're in, freshly dead, mostly dead, really, really dead, disintegrated, will be resurrected, they will be changed And then those who are alive will also be changed. Why? Simply because we're going to the Father's house and these bodies can't handle it. And so there needs to be a resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. No, this mortal must put on immortality and this corruptible must put on incorruption. So just as those two men... So we got to get our wives in that machine. The resurrection machine will so utterly change us physically. That's good news. That is great news. We're going to be changed physically. A metamorphosis. Now, having said that, once we meet the Lord in that atmosphere, in the air, with those departed believers... Once we meet and once they're resurrected and we who are alive or they who are alive are instantly changed, then there is this triumphal procession, so to speak, back up to heaven. Back up to heaven. What will happen then? I believe that's when the judgment seat of Christ will happen. What's the judgment seat of Christ? It's not where we get judged for our sins. That happened at the cross. When you receive Christ, you pass judgment. It's over. But there is a judgment seat Paul spoke about, and the Greek word bema seat speaks of a place where you will get rewarded. See, it's not just heaven. You get other stuff too. You get rewards for being faithful in using your gifts, your talents, your time, your treasure. There are several places this is mentioned. 
2 Corinthians 5.10 is the one I want to bring to your attention. For we must all appear before the judgment or bema reward seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. During that time will be on earth a tribulation period that ends with the coming of Christ with us, with the church who have been with him, coming down to the earth, where he sets up his kingdom, his millennial kingdom, and then finally the eternal state. So this is where it's all leading. And as one person said, who can mind the journey when the road leads home? My father's house. What will heaven be like? Well, we're going to do a whole separate study on that. But I'll tell you this, it's a place of variety. In my father's house, there are many mansions, rooms, apartments, you might say in a modern translation. Lots of places to hang out. I hear people talk about heaven as, oh, it's going to be really boring because we're going to sit on clouds in dumb white robes and play harps. Not this boy. Maybe an electric guitar, but not a harp. Now, there's many rooms. I'm going to be snooping around, man. I'm going to go looking around. I've got eternity. I want to see what's going on. When I was in uh, Scotland a couple weeks ago, there was this huge mansion called the Calendar House in Falkirk, Scotland. And we got in just before closing. We didn't have much time. And so a buddy and I just started quickly dashing from room to room, snooping, opening cupboards, looking everywhere we could. Here's this huge aristocratic mansion from the 1700s, beautifully preserved. I want to check it out. When I grew up, I'd always snoop in my parents' drawers. I plan to do the same in heaven. It's a personalized place. Notice Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. Now, I just want you to think about this. Jesus said this to his disciples 2,000 years ago. And that's when he left. 2,000 years ago. So for the last 2,000 years, he's been getting this place ready for you. Imagine what it must look like. When couples build a home, they have, of course, themselves in mind when they build it. They think of, I want this here and that there, this knick-knack, this carpet, that kind of chair. Jesus had you in mind when he prepared the place for you. It'll be personalized. And finally, notice here, it is a relational place. Jesus doesn't call it heaven. It's called that in other portions of the Bible, but he didn't call it that. He refers to it as my father's house. And one of the things I contend that will make heaven so great isn't what's there, but who's there. Like your home. What makes it precious isn't the cool things you've collected as much as the people who are in it. That's what makes it home. Your father will be there. Your savior will be there. And all of those relatives and friends who walked with Christ and are now dead, there will be a reunion with them. It's going to be a great house, a place of great relationship and great joy. No wonder then Charles Spurgeon told his young men that he trained for the ministry, when you talk about heaven, let your face light up with heavenly glory. When you speak about hell, your everyday face will do. (laughs) I want to close with the last two verses. I'm calling this the tragedy of his coming. Notice that Jesus, in answering Thomas, puts it in in sort of a negative light when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one 
comes to the Father except through me. You know what the tragedy is of the second coming? Is that not everyone will go to the Father's house. That's the tragedy of it. Not everyone will go to the Father's house. Even though the Bible says, God is not willing that any should perish, that all should come to repentance, all don't come to repentance. All don't believe in Christ. All don't follow Him. All don't come in repentance. And he says very plainly, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now that sounds very very dogmatic and very narrow-minded, doesn't it? Did you notice Jesus did not say, I am a way? He didn't say, I speak part of the truth or I show the way. He said, I am the way. Again, Kenneth Wiest in that translation I mentioned renders it this way. I alone, said Jesus, in contradistinction to all others, am the road, the truth, and the life. Hmm. Hmm. Is that what most people think today? Do most people think that way? Oh, no. If you talk to most people, even most church people, they sort of act that no matter how you live on earth, once you die, the preacher just says, they're in heaven now. Isn't that great? They're all in heaven. You can live like hell on earth, but you can go to heaven when you die. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, Enter in by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many go in thereby. Narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and few find it. You get that? Few. Not most, not a whole bunch. Few. That's the tragedy of His coming, is that there is a separation, an ultimate end at that point. And that's why, folks... That is why in the book of Acts or in the letters of the apostles, they felt so compelled to get that message across. That's why in Acts chapter 4, Peter said, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, unless I'm not understanding this at all, That pretty much wipes out any other way to get to heaven, right? Any other belief system, trusting in yourself, in your good works, or in another religious system, or in ceremonies. You go, man, Jesus is pretty narrow. I guess you can afford to be when you are the truth. Funny thing about truth, isn't it? The truth can afford to be very dogmatic. I had a math teacher who was so narrow-minded. She always insisted 2 plus 2 equals 4. Always. You know, if I'd get it wrong, well, couldn't you just make an exception once? Maybe, maybe it's 6 today or 5. Nope, it's always 4. No exceptions. I notice my bank is also very dogmatic every month. <laughs> About what numbers and in what order I put the numbers on the check for the house payment. They're very narrow-minded over that. Jesus is coming. It will be a triumph for some. It will be a tragedy for others. The good news is that Jesus said, I'll be back. The bad news is that Jesus said, I'll be back. It all depends on what side you're on. Now, folks, if there's any trouble at all, if we're troubled 
about anything at all in regard to Jesus coming, this is where we should be troubled. When He comes, will I be found His? Will I be following Him? Will I be ushered into His Father's house? Or will I not be? I agree with the little boy who bought a puppy at the pet store and he wanted the puppy that was wagging its tail and panting and he said, Daddy, I want the one with the happy ending. And I look at life and I watch the roads people go down and i got to tell you something. I follow the road I follow because I want the one with the happy ending. Oh, you've given up so much to be a Christian. Yeah, hell. (laughs) Fiery hell, judgment, a life of no purpose, not knowing my Creator, not waking up every morning. The guilt that we used to have And if you still have, it's time to deal with that at the cross. Heavenly Father, what great news. When Jesus said to troubled disciples, I'm going to go, but I'm going to come back and I'm going to receive you to myself. We don't want to be ignorant of these facts. And we want to feel so special that you would consider us to bring us into your Father's house. Because we know that we only really want to bring people home and have them stay at our house when we care about them. And oh, how you care for us, Lord. Lord, we know that having Christ is the difference between heaven and hell. And even before the next two studies, Lord, where we look in depth at both of those things, we consider the coming of Christ. What a triumph that will be. What a tragedy that will be for some. We've read the book of Revelation, Lord. We know the suffering and pain that will be on the earth and that many at that time will refuse to turn even though opportunities will still be given. So, Lord, at this period of history, at this time, at this place, we think about our lives. Some of us hear about the return of Christ and we're excited. We think, oh, I wish he'd come tonight. I wish he'd come before the school year. I wish he'd come before the end of summer. But others, Lord, in even thinking of the possibility, are terrified. Lord, bring them hope. May they come to the only one who is the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ. There's none other. We pray, Lord, that tonight some more would come. We're praying for them right now. Those we've invited, those that are with us. Some have heard the messages of your coming or the gospel time and time again, but have never personally responded. We pray that tonight they would. As we're praying, as our heads are bowed, and you're thinking about your life, your future, your eternity, have you turned to Christ? I know that I am speaking to some who are very good, conscientious, responsible. We would say loving, some very religious people. 
Religion won't get you to heaven. Morality won't get you to heaven. A nice disposition won't get you to heaven. Only Christ. And the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But salvation is a free gift. But you've got to receive it. If, as you examine your life right now, you can't think back to a time when you said, I turn my life over to you, God, completely, 100%. I repent of my sins and I turn my life over to you. Then here's your opportunity to come to Him and be forgiven and find hope. And if you want to do that, you're never forced to do it, but if you want to do that, then I want to pray for you before we close, but i got to know who you are. I want you to raise your hand up. I want you to raise your hand up. I want you to raise your hand up. I want you to raise your hand up.